0: Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze the music, legacy, and cultural impact of all your favorite pop stars. I'm your host, DJ Louis XIV, and I'm a DJ, writer, and all around pop music fanatic. I've spent my entire life and career thinking about, dissecting, and being obsessed with pop stars their music, their legacies, how they relate to one another, to the larger pop musical landscape, and to culture more broadly. What separates an icon from a mere superstar? Why do some careers become the soundtrack to our lives and why do others flop? Whose work in legacy transcends time and whose feels stuck in it? Every episode of Pop Pantheon, we'll devote an entire episode to a pop icon, from titans of the genre like Beyonce and all the way down to uh, lesser titans, like Nicole Scherzinger. Each episode, you'll hear a little breakdown from me, and then some distinguished guests and I will chop it up about their careers, discographies, public personas, live performances, music videos, feuds, tweets, you name it. And at the end, we'll turn pop into fantasy football, make our final judgment, and place them in the official pop pantheon. Hello, friends. Welcome back to yet another episode of Pop Pantheon. This is DJ Louie. I'm so glad you're here with me again. This week, I want to just quickly lead off with a few things that I say often. If you're enjoying the podcast, please, please, please consider giving us a follow, Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram, and giving me a follow, djlouiexiv on Twitter and Instagram. We talk about pop on all All of those channels, we talk about the episodes, we share our favorite songs, we talk about controversial parts of that week's subject. It's really fun, great people over there, so join me over there. Also, please, if you have it in your heart, give me five-star rating, give the podcast a review. I read all of them, I love them so much, and it really, really helps the podcast get up in the rankings, get exposed to more people, And I would so, so appreciate all of your help with that. Also, make sure you check out the Spotify playlist for this and all the episodes, which are in the show notes. I'm working on providing them for the previous episodes, but they are already in there for the last couple, and they will be in there for this one, which will be particularly fun because this subject has produced so many incredible hits that you may not even know about over the last 25 years. And the last thing I wanted to say before we just get into this week's topic is that this episode does include an in-depth discussion of one of this week's subject's primary collaborators, the producer Dr. Luke, who has been accused of assault by Kesha And I just wanted to make sure that I issued a warning about that up top. We do discuss the allegations briefly, and we also do talk about the production collaboration that he had with our subject this week. So if that's not something you want to hear about, please feel free to skip this episode. And with all of that said, and without further ado, here is this week's pop pantheon, Max Martin. talk about the great pop figures of the last 25 years, some names come readily to mind. Britney, Bieber, Beyonce, Gaga, Taylor. One that might not come as fast, though, is Max Martin. And yet Max, the Swedish pop producer-auteur, has spent the last quarter century quietly crafting the soundtrack of our lives, writing and producing so many indelible hits for the entire Rolodex of the world's biggest pop stars. Britney and Christina, Backstreet and N6, Celine Dion, Bon Jovi, Kelly Clarkson, Pink, Avril, Katy Perry, Gaga, Kesha, Usher, Selena, Justin Timberlake, Taylor Swift, Ariana, Lana Del Rey, Ed Sheeran, Bieber, The Weeknd, just to name some examples. Actually, a quick look at his discography could literally make a pop fan's head explode. While the average person may not even be able to pick him out of a lineup, Max is responsible for the second most number one singles of any artist ever on the Hot 100, second only to the Beatles. And in the ever fickle landscape of popular music, where superstars come and go with the wind, it's safe to say Max Martin has been perhaps pop's only constant in the modern era. I would even venture to say he is the single greatest pop artist of the 21st century. And yet, almost no one knows who he is. Max's career as a pop producer began in the mid-90s in Stockholm, where, after a brief stint fronting a hair metal band called It's Alive, he was discovered by his mentor, the producer Dennis Pop, and quickly pivoted to creating the sound that would define the TRL teen pop boom of the latter part of that decade. Melding R&B grooves, arena rock choruses, and a distinctly Swedish pop sheen, Max and his crew of disciples at their studio, Sharon began cranking out a veritable tour de force of pop hits, factory style. You might remember a few of them. Show me love, as long as you love me, hit me baby one more time, you drive me crazy, sometimes, tearing up my heart, it's gonna be me, oops I did it again, stronger, lucky, everybody backstreets back, that's the way it is, and of course, I want it that way. Just to name a scant few. After a brief lull following the collapse of the teen pop craze, Max quickly reinvented himself in the mid-2000s. Ever the chameleon, he teamed up with a then-unknown protege called Dr. Luke to create yet another slew of period-defining hits, this time centered around a popified version of punk rock music, but which featured the same meticulous pop craftsmanship. So dedicated to perfection was he, in fact, that Max even created a name for his theory in creating hit records— melodic math. This man literally made chart-topping into a veritable science. In this second period of radio dominance, Max, along with Luke, was responsible for smashes like Pink's You in Your Hand and Who Knew and So What, Avril's What the Hell, and of course, Kelly Clarkson's iconic Since, you been since You've Been Gone. As the pop rock trend gave way to the dance pop boom of the late 2000s, Max again shifted with the Sands. There, he and Luke rode yet another jaw-dropping wave of chart success with hits that fused their rock instincts and pop shimmer with the club-ready sounds of the EDM movement that was coming into vogue in that period. And yet another triumphant run. Max crafted hits like Kesha's Blow, Kelly Clarkson's My Life Would Suck Without You, Britney's If You Seek Amy, Hold It Against Me, Till the World Ends, Three and I Wanna Go, Usher's DJ Got Us Fallen in Love Again, Tao Cruz's Dynamite, Bieber's Beauty and a Beat, Justin Timberlake's Can't Stop the Feeling, Demi Lovato's Cool for the Summer, Jesse J's Domino, and of course, Katy Perry's I Kissed a Girl, Hot and Cold, California Girls Last Friday Night, and The Indelible Teenage Dream. boom receded, as did Max's collaboration with Luke following the assault charges leveled against Luke by their collaborator Kesha, Max again reinvented in the mid-2000s, this time pivoting to work with a wide assortment of already established superstars to put his sparkle on their distinctive sonic worlds. He teamed up with Ariana Grande for smashes like Problem, Break Free, Love Me Harder, Dangerous Woman, Into You, Side to Side, Bang Bang, Break Up With Your Girlfriend I'm Bored, God is a Woman, and No Tears Left to Cry. He collaborated with Taylor Swift, helping her shape her pop crossover on smashes like We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together, I Knew You Were Trouble, Shake It Off, Blank Space, Style, and Delicate, and he helped turn the weekend from alt-R&B bad boy to glossy pop icon on behemoths like Can't Feel My Face, Save Your Tears, and of course, Blinding Lights, the biggest hit of 2020, and Max's 22nd chart chopper. Max Martin is responsible for no fewer than 58 top 10 singles on the Hot 100. Yeah, I said that. 58. And as I mentioned earlier, contained in those, he is the songwriter with the second most number one singles on the Hot 100 behind only the Beatles, Paul McCartney, and John Lennon, and the producer with the second most Hot 100 number one singles with 22. In early 2019, his single sales were tallied by The Hollywood Reporter to be over $735 million worth. According to Variety, his net worth is approximately $660 million as of 2018. Martin has won an ASCAP Award for Songwriter of the Year, a record 11 times, and has been nominated for 22 Grammys with five wins, including Producer of the Year in 2015. Here with me today to break down the man, the myth, the legend of pop, Max Martin, all of his different eras, and the secrets to being the most prolific hitmaker in modern history is literally the man who wrote the book on Max Martin, the New Yorker's John Seabrook. John's absolutely fabulous book, The Song Machine, which I cannot recommend to listeners of this podcast enough, chronicles the invention of the modern pop songwriting process and focuses mainly on Max. Obviously, this conversation is a little different than what we normally do on this podcast as Max is not technically a pop star, so we don't spend time at the end of it ranking him in the Pantheon. Instead, I want this to be the kickoff to a sort of mini-series within Pop Pantheon about what I'm calling influencers or figures who aren't performers but have had a massive impact on the Pantheon. Considering that counting the subjects of the 10 previous episodes of this podcast, Max has made hits with six of them, I feel like he qualifies. So here is my conversation with John Seabrook. Uh-huh. Okay, so I'm here with John Seabrook, staff writer for The New Yorker, and author of one of my favorite books about the modern popular music industrial complex, The Song Machine. John, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Lewis. It's really great to be here.
0: I, As I told you when I emailed you, I cannot recommend The Song Machine enough to the listeners of this podcast. John, I don't know if, you've, if you know, this podcast centers around pop stars. So each episode, we usually spend time dissecting the career of a pop star. And right. the amount of time that this man's name has come up on this podcast, it just, it just felt to me like it was a service that needed to be done to a listenership here to uh-huh. cue people in on Max Martin as you, as probably one of the most prolific creators of popular music over the last 21 years. And who better to speak to than you, so immersed in this man's story and in your wonderful book. So you wrote this book. The book chronicles kind of the modern history of how pop music is made in these sort of factory style settings where they're sort of generating hits almost in like a scientific way. And the creator of sort of the modern way of creating pop songs is this guy Max Martin. But unlike many producers in the modern pop canon, Max Martin has managed to avoid being trendy, avoided being sort of pegged to a specific period of music and has maintained relevance for 21 plus, maybe even more, almost 25 years at this point, which is kind of unheard of for a pop producer. They're usually extremely fatty. They can get very linked to a specific moment in time. But this man has managed to transcend all of those things and actually, I believe, has the most number one hits of any artist besides The Beatles, which is a pretty incredible feat. So before we even get into talking about Max, one of the key elements to who Max Martin is is that he is a Swede. And Sweden is a very important hotbed of popular music across decades and across popular music history. So my first question for you, John, is why Sweden? Why is Sweden such an important locale for pop music?
1: Sweden has always been very sort of export-oriented because it's a small country... They can't support a large industry just by selling to Swedes, so they've always had to sort of sell to other people. Uh, Also, Sweden has always been very sort of English language oriented, quick to adapt, English language on television, unlike France uh, or even Germany, where, you know, a lot fewer people speak English. So in terms of writing songs for an English audience, the Swedish background was important there, too. But, you know, I think ABBA is is, is such a huge influence that you kind of do need to say that, you know, there was this gigantic success in, in the 70s. That was created from music that was, you know, there was sort of a, they call music the Schlager music, which is that kind of ooh um, pa, pa hear it on street corners. It's, it's very uh, Germanic sounding. steht uh, ein Soldat und träumt von und dem Glück, das zu Hause blieb zurück. Abba kind of took that. And then use sort of synthesizers to kind of make it modern and then blend it with other influences, beat-driven influences, and, and, and showed that, you know, Swedes could rule the world uh, with their product. Into Sweden, the largest of the Scandinavian countries. And although we're looking at streets, it's a country full of mountains, lakes and forests. And of course it's full of blonde Vikings. And uh, Waterloo by ABBA for Sweden. Watch this one. Waterloo! And then so the next generation grew up knowing that there was this example that this could happen. And so they, they had ambitions that were always larger than Sweden.
0: I, I, I That's so interesting. And, and one thing I think you also point out in the book that I found really fascinating is sort of the shame that Americans have around liking pop music because our society lacks a traditional caste system so our culture sort of becoming our caste system and thus having cultural reference points that are seen as cool is very important to americans and thus often we sort of see liking pop music as uncool or sort of like a lower rung of our society in a way that you were sort of pointing out in the book that a lot of Europeans in general, but Swedish people in particular, don't have that sort of hang-up about pop or a hang-up about liking it.
1: Well, the thing is, they did have it back in the day, in the 70s, but... They kind of, you know, got a lot. there was a lot of backlash against ABBA in Sweden by, from sort of enlightened musical circles that saw it as very commercial and, and manufactured. The same criticisms that have been leveled against Max Martin. But, you know, ABBA had a whole second wave. So, you know, ABBA was uncool. And then ABBA kind of came back. It was rebranded, and it was then it was ABBA Gold, you know, in the '90s. So, um, yeah, I think yeah, they were at that point more inclined to take pop seriously, maybe than than we are. Uh, uh, and also, they weren't hung up on the same kind of race issues right. as we are. That's a huge thing, too, of course.
0: Right, because you point out a lot of that that sort of Max's, one of Max's major innovations, being able to cherry-pick the best parts of various other genres or the most accessible, fun parts of other genres sort of freely and mash them all together in a way that sort of wasn't loaded with the racial undertones that we have here in America, where if a white producer is sort of cherry-picking aspects of R&B music or hip-hop music, it comes very loaded with a lot of um, subtext in America that's not that in a homogenous society like Sweden is sort of they're, they're free from that in a
1: sense. Absolutely. That, that was a, I think that's a huge freeing, influence when you don't feel like you're uh, you know maybe it's ignorance a certain amount but you're not right. a- appropriating uh, you don't really you're not even aware of it you're basically in a white culture so now it might be different but certainly when when the sound the Sharon sound was being created in the 90s with Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears it was very important that this uh, white R&B that kind of came from ABBA but then was funked up a little bit uh, by Den- pop, and, uh, and and white producers in America probably would have thought that was too, yeah, appropriating, or they would have been embarrassed to do that, maybe.
0: Right, and I think the other really interesting thing that I just want to make sure we highlight about Sweden, I, I think this is a Nordic thing, generally speaking, but in terms of spe- especially of Swedish producers, of which there are many, it's not just Max, there's right. Klaus Åland, there's his entire, yep. there's the whole cadre of of Max's disciples. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the major things, and I, and we'll get to this later when we talk about Dr. Luke, who is an American producer and protege of Max. Um, yeah. But one thing that you point out in your book is a quote by this guy, Klaus Allend, who uh, is a major Swedish producer, tangentially related to Max, who is perhaps most famous now for being the producer of a lot of latter period Robin albums? Yeah, uh, he he pointed out, and you quoted him in your book as saying, essentially. There's not this drive for the producer to become famous themselves. There's not this thing that you have in America where it's all about like making your brand, making yeah. your name, the producer being out front, The Max, Max Martin being a, a kind of a recluse in a sense. I mean, one of the things that was interesting about in your book is I felt like you had access to a lot of people, but it, it doesn't seem like you even had direct access to Max because Max doesn't give interviews. He's very sort right. of like uh, m- almost uh, uh, monastic about his work and... Yeah. That, I feel like that seems to be an important factor in what's allowed him to maintain such longevity because it's never really been about him. It's always sort of been about the work, and that feels Swedish to me.
1: Absolutely, yeah. There's a total... Well, and there's this whole... sort What do they call it? Uh, the laws of Yante or Yante and It's the idea that anyone who sort of tries to be famous or, you know, get too much glory is guilty of sticking his head out too far and should be brought back to earth by the rest of the people. So it's almost the opposite of the culture in America where stars and, and getting to the top and, and money too, yeah, of course. Mm. It's, Sweden is a pretty much of a socialist country, so people don't really grow up in a tradition of making, you know, millions of dollars as being like a huge value that they aspire to, unlike here. I think that the the Swedes are are gifted in that they're maybe not as driven, although Max is certainly very wealthy, so he ended up being wealthy in the end. I genuinely don't think that the Swedes are as sort of money-driven as Americans, but I think that's their Swedish, uh, their socialist kind of background.
0: Let's just, let's talk about Dennis Pop for a second. Uh, Dennis Pop is the founder of Chiron and he, and he is Max Martin's mentor. So who is Dennis Pop? What is he set out to do by founding this studio? And what are the musical innovations that he brings to creating pop? Okay. So
1: Dennis Pop is a DJ in Stockholm in the eighties. And, you know, there's clubs, uh, one in particular, he's got a, a, a night where he plays American, you know, sort of 70s funk and uh, remixing uh, records and putting them out under um, the, uh, the Sharon label. <laughs> Shayron is really just a, a studio in the middle of Stockholm. Shayron is, is like a Greek centaur or something. He's a figure from mythology. And it's, you know, just a pretty small space that Dennis started to do this kind of remixing work for European audiences. But he always had the idea, as I was saying earlier, that he could be larger than, than Europe and could be a hitmaker for America. And his first ticket really was Ace of Base, which a lot of people know now, partly because of Dennis, created these incredible songs with Ace of Base. But right. anyway, they, they sent him a demo, and I read, there's a fun story in the book about how it got stuck in the dashboard of his car. It was like tape right. player, and he was forced to listen to it for a week, and he finally realized how he was going to do it, and, and he created out of that uh, All That She Wants, which was the first Ace of Base song.
0: innovation that we hear on all that she wants. What what is the sort of like click moment there where we sort of the cheer the, the Sharon sound comes together? It's, it's like
1: it's it's Swedish funk or something. It's uh it's like a R it's an RMV. There's that hi-hat snare combination it's a sort of very distinctive rhythmic footprint that became very identified with Sharon's uh, hits through the Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears and in fact became so recognizable that I think Max Martin felt he had to leave it behind eventually he, as soon as you hear it you know it right
0: it's that like sort of like four bar syncopated rhythm that then like smacks together into the groove that plays throughout the rest of the song
1: Electronic production, which was, you know, at the time, maybe not a huge aspect of American pop music, done at a very high level of taste, sophistication, but also sort of simplified. It was interesting. There was a lot going on. You could hear it a lot, but there was a simplicity to it that you sort of understood it right away. And, and that was what I think the ASAP based people felt that Dennis really brought to their demo. Was that he knew how to simplify it and eliminate stuff in order to make the stuff that was the best kind of shine.
0: He knew that songs, like that you had to get to the hook quickly and you had to really like structure the whole song around like immediately hooking people in on the sort of most catchy glossy part of the song and then you can also sort of hear free use of or appropriation of like a reggae groove which like you wouldn't expect to hear in a swedish you know swedish song but that sort of speaks to what we were getting at earlier in terms of this sort of uh openness and fluidity in terms of incorporating all different kinds of genres without sort of being tuned into the loaded baggage of appropriation a sense
1: And then the lyrics are odd because they're captivating. But the reason they're captivating is kind of because they don't really make sense. And the reason they don't make sense is because they're written by Swedes that don't quite speak English. But But the fact that they're slightly off is kind of what makes them memorable and unique. You know, like all that she wants is another baby doesn't mean that she's... Planning on getting pregnant again, right? It right. means that she wants a, another man because she's like a man hunter, you know, kind of like a right. man eater. But a lot of people think, particularly when they were kids and they heard that song, that it was like sweet, you know, <laughs> that right, maternity.
0: And that speaks to a couple things, one of which is the uh, A-Max Martin trademark, which is songs that don't make lyrical sense in English. Yeah, hit me baby one more time you bring up as another example of a song where like they thought hit me baby one more time, they they were trying to convey somebody calling you back. And when they initially pitched that song to TLC, TLC, T-Boz or something was like, I'm not singing a song about getting hit, you know? So it was another one of those sort exactly. of Swedish things. And you can hear it all the way through. I mean, I want it that way by the Backstreet Boys makes very little sense when you start to break down the lyrics of the chorus. And all the way through to Ariana Grande's Break Free, I remember a story about Ariana Grande telling about making that song with Max Martin where the lyric of the pre-chorus is, now that I've become who I really are... Now- Become who I really am. And she wanted to change it so badly to now that I've become who I really am because that's proper English, but Max wouldn't let her because the melodic what he calls melodic math of the song is ultimately more important than the lyrics actually making sense. Max is not particularly concerned with being Bob Dylan. It's about pleasure in the most Primal sense of the word as the goal. So the origin story of Max as a pop producer is that he walks into Shayron essentially as a hard rocker in this band called It's Alive, which kind of ends up going nowhere, but which obviously gives Dennis enough of a clue that Max is some sort of melodic pop genius, right?
1: Yes, exactly right. And people can look at it live on YouTube and see why Max is no longer in that Uh, band. I'm going to
0: put a clip of it right here. I guess to Max's eternal credit, he listened to Dennis, ditched It's Alive and decided to give the pop production thing a serious go of it. So Max's first swing of success as the pop or tour that we know him to be today begins with Robin really, but then the Backstreet Boys and Britney and NSYNC. And the sound that you sort of describe that Max takes from Dennis's innovations with Ace of Bass is what you describe as a combination of ABBA's pop chords and textures, Dennis Pop's song structures and dynamics, 80s arena rocks, big choruses, and 90s American R&B grooves, which I think is so interesting because it's as we were sort of getting at earlier, it's sort of like... Um, free of genre and sort of all about cherry picking the most catchy, glossy aspects of other forms of music. So like if a rock song is too hard edged as a concept for this particular period, but the chorus is extremely catchy, he wants that. If R&B is lacking certain melody that he's looking for, but has a groove, he wants that. You can sort of see this almost like omnivorous ability to cherry pick from other genres in the sound that he creates with Backstreet and britney in these early hits and i think we should just spend a minute talking about hit me baby one more time as kind of the emblematic max martin sort of aha moment of his first run
1: well they as you said earlier i mean he had written hit me baby one more time and offered it to tlc and he had done the demo max i i heard the demo when i was reporting my book and the demo is is exactly the way britney sings it so it, it wasn't like he was looking for somebody to take this song and do something else with it. He had it, and right. he sang it, and he sang—he right. sang all the different parts of it on the demo. He's an amazing singer.
0: Yeah, and you really hear the crystallization of everything that we've been talking about—the R and B groove, as you said. It was written for TLC. I feel like you can very much hear the sort of extension of like the Dallas Austin, Babyface R and B grooves of the '90s right. in there. You can very much hear the sort of crystalline European production gloss that they put on it. And you can hear the sort of big, almost arena rock chorus that it has going on. That is such an interesting combination of elements that like you wouldn't necessarily think would work, but sort of come together to make this utterly perfect, almost like factory produced perfection pop song. (laughs) I also love how you mentioned that, like, there's so many little flourishes in there, such as, like, the wah-wah guitar, as you were just talking about, that's helping to establish it as a rock song that's distant from disco. So in that era when people were sort of anti-disco or feeling not as inclined to like pop music, it was giving you this vibe of welcoming you in and saying, no, this is a cool record, this is not disco. And then... You talk about sort of all of the different elements of this coming together. It's almost as if Max is a mad scientist, and this is his Frankenstein moment, where like all of these things, all of these influences that he's able to draw in freely come together into this almost perfect manifestation of the Sharon sound. And the
1: sort of sad irony oh, of it is, is that Dennis popped died just before that song came out because he got cancer and he only lived till he was 35. So just as his dreams of being an international hit maker were realized, he died and Max was left kind of like as the one in charge, right? Mm. So that was really hard. Uh, for
0: him. Right, and then after Max and the Shayron crew create Hit Me Baby one more time, they essentially go on after Dennis's death to create the entire sound of that era. I mean, Backstreet Boys, I Want It That Way. Tell me why ain't nothing but day. Oops, I Did It Again. Oops, I did it again to your heart. Got lost in this table, baby. And sings bye bye bye, and it's gonna be me. Leans. that's the way it is one question I have from you is as I was reading the book I was thinking to myself all right like this is incredible all these innovations make sense but then I was sort of thinking about like what's what do you feel like sort of differentiates what Max is and crew are doing in this era from the great pop producers of the previous era, like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, what, like what they were doing with Janet, or what Quincy Jones is doing with Michael, or what Babyface is doing with Tony Braxton. What are the things that differentiate this approach from the other sort of like pop producers, Vengalis of the eighties and early nineties? Well, they're
1: white. They're white artists. I mean, they're doing it all for white artists, right? For one right, thing, right, right. So it's a. It's. I mean, if you just look at it in terms of the ever evolving black R&B and the white pop sound I think that they were able to bring more of that black R&B sound into white pop than had previously been the case but that's partly what black artists didn't want to do it and they wanted them to do it and now with The weekend, in a way Max has realized maybe his earliest fantasies of creating (laughs) R&B for black artists I think that's an important part of it yeah
0: well Definitely, and I also think, you know, part of it might be sort of what we were getting at earlier in terms of, like, as much as, like, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis were architects of Janet Sound, the artists of that era were much more personality-driven than the boy bands and Britney were. So, like, even if Janet was getting a huge assist from her collaborators in this sense, there was always this sort of imperative on pop artists to prove that they were artistes, that they were... A driving force artistically behind their music. And I think at least in this early iteration of Max Martin, and we I do want to talk to you about the sort of Taylor era later because clearly this isn't how it's working now totally. Right. But at least in, this, in the Sharon days, that sort of like, Max Martin Svengali, I have the, the entire thing ready and I just need a sort of almost a cipher to come in and deliver right. my vision. Britney was not a personality-driven artist in that way. She was much more willing to sort of be crafted in a way that I would imagine Janet, Madonna, or even a Whitney, because Whitney's not writing her own music, but it's so much centered around yes. sort of like the Whitney persona. And I want to strongly caveat here that I am not meaning to diminish Britney's immense talent and contributions to any of this at all. She is clearly so talented and her Many, many decade career working across numerous producers on, you know, 10, 15 years of hits proves that there's something Britney does that is so uniquely and singularly Britney. So I'm not meaning to demean her, but in this early era with Britney and the Boy Bands and Backstreet, it was almost more about the Sharon sound than it was about any of them as individuals having their own sounds. It was almost like Max was the artistic driving force, Sharon was the artistic driving force more so than the previous generation of artists like Janet and Madonna who felt that they had to be the primary artistic force behind their music. She's got an excellent voice. It's like, um, it's, it's, it's actually quite, you know, what I heard in the Backstreet Boys, that they had, you know, excellent voice with a bit of flavor in it, you know, a good sense of, you know, catching the melody, performing it, like taking it to another level. Because as a songwriter, that's what you're looking for. You do a song that sounds good, and then if the artist can take that to another level you know, that's the perfect thing, that's the perfect situation. Making my first record is great, yeah, it's a lot of fun, and um, people really don't realize what, you know, work goes into it. Max is as nice as he is talented. He's really a great guy, and I'm very
1: thankful to be able to work with him. He's great.
0: The way I work is to have a good song, you
1: know. It always has to be a good song. Yeah, absolutely. And it shifted the zeitgeist in a way that you could still see in the pop world today, where producers are very much in charge, and they're the artists. And artists are kind of for hire until they prove that they can stand on their own.
0: Well, that was definitely true in that era. And I do think we should address later on how that actually may have been or may be changing right now. So the next thing I want to hit on is so we have this boy band explosion that Max completely is the architect of a a pure pop takeover that sort of follows a very different era of grunge, which was all about sort of like authenticity
1: singer songwriters, singer songwriters, Chris Cornell.
0: Exactly. It was a huge swing. And then. We sort of get into a phase where Max actually hits like maybe one of the only true lulls of his career. And you do a wonderful job in the book talking about Guy Napoleon's three-part song cycle, which essentially talks about how pop music works in a a 10-year cycle, essentially, where like pure pop becomes mainstream for a period of time, then essentially becomes uncool, which opens up a sort of portal for other subgenres to come in and take over pop for a while. Following the boy band era, this was an era when hip-hop really became central to pop music and sort of became the answer to the backlash against Britney and the boy bands. You had Eminem, you had 50 Cent, you had this big explosion of hip-hop-oriented pop music that sort of ended Max's initial run of success, and... That was sort of the bridge period or that doldrums period for Max was when he sort of had to face a the prospect of his first major reinvention. So this is maybe the only, I say from maybe 2002 to 2004 was maybe the yeah. only time period in our last 20 years where Max Martin hasn't been essentially dominating the pop landscape. So the sound recedes and... Max ends up sort of coming to New York more or less and coming into contact with this guy, Dr. Luke, who is a guitarist for Saturday Night Live, a sort of is dabbling in music production, but not in the way that we would come to know him later. And Max Martin and Dr. Luke come together and that sort of is the spark that generates sort of the next almost 10 year swing of Max's production and pop radio dominance. So what is the new sound that Max Martin and Dr. Luke sort of come up with together. And what does Dr. Luke give to Max that sort of reinvigorates him in 2004?
1: Yeah, well, so yes, Dr. Luke was a very different personality than Max Martin, whereas Max is a very sort of careful, his father was a policeman. He's a very... A conservative seeming, not maybe politically, but but in his personal habits, and and would never do anything probably that broke the law or, or any. But whereas Dr. Luke was sort of this flamboyant hot dealing New York street kid who had been kicked out of various places and parents were sort of bohemians and he lives in Chelsea and he had this little studio and he was you know sort of steeped in kind of early hip hop scene in New York. You know, there was a lot of white producers doing black music in the smaller clubs. And Max felt that Dr. Luke had this interesting combination of rock, guitar, schooling. He, he had been to Manhattan right. School of Music. And and as you said, he was in the band on Saturday Night Live, which was actually a very influential period for any producer because their styles of music are very broad, sort of the canon, the American songbook. Right. So he had kind of a grounding in what you might want to call like sort of classical pop music. So he brought just all stuff to the table in terms of attitude, in terms of uh, his exposure to you know, hip hop production styles, I guess, uh, just a different sound. <laughs> Not not an R and B sound. Uh, a, a much like Dr. Edgier... Luke had
0: produced for like most
1: Def, right? Stuff. He worked with most Def. All all you know you know you know right, most Def had given I him I his say. name, I think, Dr. Luke, which yes. he didn't even really like.
0: But the but. The sound that Luke and Max sort of settle on in 2004 could not be further from hip hop. I mean, one of the things that was very interesting to me in reading the book was that Max's R&B aspirations as sort of personified by TLC's rejection of hit me baby one more time were surface level. He wasn't really able to make actual R&B music because he was Swedish, because he's this white guy. He wasn't really steeped in that culture. But interestingly, the sound that Max, that Max and Luke end up having massive success with really has absolutely nothing to do with R&B and hip hop in, yeah. in that mid-2000s era. It's really True. based in, as you point out, Luke's fascination with indie rock and the breakthrough sort of occurs when they are listening together to the song Maps by... By the yeah yeah yeahs and realize that if we could put a bigger chorus on this song this could really be something'm
1: like I'm, I'm I'm oh say say, say. And then they right. heard the, in the in the song, but it's not the chorus in the song. It's the little bit of the break, the sort of the bridgey part, where it's almost it's that guitar, you know, going nee 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 near, and, and they realized that that was the <laughs> the way to into the chorus. and that it could be mm-hmm. like a huge yeah like a rock arena chorus right
0: and before they knew it they were creating a song that they thought they would pitch ultimately to Pink but ultimately became Kelly Clarkson's Since You've Been Gone
1: and you ever hear me and they should have credited the, the, the yeah 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 it was a creative theft or something, or a creative uh, borrowing or something. I'm not sure how to describe it. Yeah,
0: well, Luke and Max are certainly noted for their lack of, let's say, boundaries when it comes to taking inspiration. But Since You've Been Gone sort of becomes this massive career redefining hit for Max Martin that sets up this entire first or next swing of his career and first swing of his collaboration with Dr. Luke that is centered on this sort of pop rock sound that defines this era. You've got Kelly's follow-up to that behind these hazel eyes. Here I am. Got pinks you in your hand and who knew I'm
1: not here for your entertainment You don't really wanna mess with me tonight
0: Just stop and take a second I was blind before you walked into my life You've got the Veronicas forever You're- I mean, this is a sound that they end up sort of riding to great success that creates the entire sort of second wave of Max's career. So my question for you is... Even though this sound is so different from the Chiron sound, where in this sound, I guess, can we hear similarities to what Max is doing with the Chiron boy band Britney era, and what are the differences?
1: Well, I think the lyrics definitely change. Uh, one thing that becomes noticeably different, I think, when Max comes to America is, like, the English uh, improves. You don't get any more of those uh, <laughs> uh, Swedish neologisms or, you know, Swinglish, what they call it, like right. English, Swedish, Swedish, English. That improves, right. and, and that actually... Kind of changes a lot, I think, because you, now you can kind of listen to the songs for their lyric message uh, in a way that I don't think... Right, I, like Since You've Been big, Gone
0: really actually tells you. Yeah, Since You've Been Gone
1: actually is a, is a lyric statement. It's a great song. It's a synced, you know, it makes you feel, it oh. empowers you. It's a different kind of a feeling that Hit Me Baby One More Time. Hit, um, Hit
0: Me Baby One More Time is like more about the feeling of like the sort of like purring feeling you get from it. It's not so much like telling you a story. Since you begun literally starts with the lyric, "Here's the thing, we
1: started off friends."
0: Here's the thing, we started off friends. It's like it's literally right. setting out to great, tell great you great a lyrics. story. Great
1: Here's the thing. What a great way to start a song. Yeah. Here's the thing. Yeah,
0: and Pink's "Hue and your Hand" similarly starts with "Check it out going out on the late night."
1: Check it out going out on the late night
0: now you know they're set, they're setting out to tell you more of a story on these songs
1: so but these artists are also different from Britney i mean pink was established and actually i don't think enjoyed her experience of working with dr luke and and max and i think swore that she wouldn't work with them again Kelly Clarkson was, uh, Well, in fact, that's a very interesting note on that song that uh, Kelly Clarkson did not want to sing that song right. and didn't want it on her album, uh, even though it was the thing that made her from being an uh, American Idol winner to having a real recording career. But she didn't like it, and and Max Martin and Clive Davis made her sing that song. So there's more tension, I think, with the artists in America uh, that he's starting to work with.
0: Yeah, you're dealing again with more personality-driven artists. Pink... Kelly Clarkson, these were artists that were very much wanting to drive their own narrative and drive their own sound. So I can imagine that Max kind of was in some form of conflict around these things where it was like he had had this approach that had worked so well in the late 90s and early 2000s with the boy band. Britney sound. And now you're coming to America, you've got this new sound. And the sound is based around sort of a punky energy, which is more driven by the sense of like, I'm personality driven. Like the sound of the boy band and Britney era was not about being personality driven as we were getting at. Whereas a pop punk sound is about or, you know, at least needs to pretend to be about having independence, being sort of your own person, you know, that's sort of like the the tenets of what that sound would be like. So you need mm-hmm. artists in a way that have that personality to them, but at the same time, that kind of could fly in the face of Max's Sven right. approach to creating music. So that's sort of the second swing of the Max sound. It's the, the initial Max and Dr. Luke hookup, and they have these big hits with these sort of pop-punk Girls, Kelly, Avril, and uh, Pink. And then I think Katy Perry actually provides an interesting bridge into what I would kind of deem as the third Max Martin wave. You know, music again shifts back more towards a pure pop sound in the 2008 beginning sort of with Lady Gaga, beginning with this sort of dance pop sound that becomes the centerpiece of American popular music. And Katy Perry to me sort of provides a bridge between multiple things. Katy Perry provides a bridge between the pop punk sound and the dance pop sound because a lot of those early Katy Perry records, whether you're talking about I Kissed a Girl... you're talking about hot and cold cold. both produced by and written by max and luke in case that wasn't clear and then of course on the teenage dream songs california girls teenage dream the song these are songs that sort of are marrying the kelly clarkson song the guitar driven instrumentation the big rock chorus with four on the floor beats and sort of the more electronic flourishes of edm I think Katy Perry sort of provides a bridge between the Max Martin style approaches to producing and songwriting, which is that she is both kind of trying to drive a personality at you, but is also very much willing to be molded by Max and Luke. Do I have
1: that right? I mean, yeah, I would just, if you look at Katy Perry's career up to the point where she met Dr. Luke... um, Previous to that, uh, she had been trying to be a very different kind of an artist, and that was Alanis Morissette, who was of the icon of the, the mid '90s. And she had gone to Alanis's producer and co-writer had said, "Can you make me Alanis?" And they had and spent quite a lot of time writing songs and made a record that I don't think ever came out. But she was like a folky singer-songwritery person, and I think even though Max and company and he said, No, that's not who you are. You're, uh, I kissed a girl, you're hot and cold, and then, yeah, your teenage dream. I think she did bring her singer songwritery vibe to her work so that you feel like with Katy Perry, an element of she's in charge, even though she's, yeah, mm. pop, pure pop, pop princess. <laughs> There's something about it that doesn't seem like she's just acting out some role that somebody else created for her. But in a
0: way, Katy Perry provides Max and Luke with an opportunity to sort of bring everything they've done up to that point together into one artist. It's like you've got both an artist that's willing to sort of listen to them, (laughs) more so than Kelly and Pink. But you also still get the kind of personality-driven artist that you didn't have with Britney and the Backstreet Boys. And you have sort of the marriage of the sort of pop punk vibe of the Kelly and Pink songs with the more kind of electronic production of the Sharon days, in a sense. So she's sort of like the ultimate... Max Martin's vision come to life almost uh, she of, like is. 10 years of work manifesting in a sense
1: she is yeah it, it was a perfect collaboration
0: what is the dynamic between Max and Luke in this sort of second period of their work together like post Katie Katie and on so you so we talked about how Luke brought a lot sort of these rock elements back into Max's music and sort of provided Max with the reinvigoration of this second part of his career in this Katie in this Katie era moving forward, what does their dynamic shift? Who is is Luke now driving more than Max is or are is it a total 50-50 collaboration? Like what is their dynamic in creating the Katy Perry records?
1: Well, this is another interesting thing about the world that Max Martin helped create is that there's very strong master mentor relationship it's a world that you learn and really sitting there at the mixing bench next to the master and there's no other way to do it and and so you know the relationship between max and luke began in a master mentor relationship where you know max is very much the master luke was just doing stuff in clubs like he hadn't even made a record or like not a pop record certainly he didn't know any of that But by the time he made four years' worth of hits with Max Martin, he did know how to do it, right? He learned a lot. So so the dynamic naturally changed. Of course, also the other thing that happened was that Luke started his own publishing company, Prescription Songs, and he had a label deal with Sony, Kemosabe Records, his label. Luke's an operator, right? Max is a songwriter, right, a producer. Luke is an operator uh, and wants to be a mogul. So, like, he had a whole other gear. Much more American in that way, right? Oh, yeah, and and nobody loves money more than Luke, and everybody will tell you (laughs) that, like, his problem (laughs) is that he can't let it alone, right? He can't just say, okay, yeah, that's fair, whatever, you know, so. But during
0: the Katy era, you would say that it was more or less like a 50-50 collab, like in terms of how they were creating those songs? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I think that was when their collaboration hit that's probably perfect sweet spot. Right, they were right. equally matched. Right, right. each yeah. bringing and something. Yeah, it really, it and
0: really, it really paid off. This third swing also encompasses the Britney record. I mean, they gave Britney a huge comeback record on Femme Fatale. They, her record was mm. produced by the two of them. I
1: can't take it, take it, take no more. Never felt like, felt like this before. Come on, get
0: me, get me on the floor. DJ, what you, what you waiting for? Oh. And Kesha's Blow. 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 Also in this period, Max begins to work separately again from Dr. Luke on hits like Usher's DJ Got Us Falling in Love Again. And Maroon Fives One More Night. One of the things that really fascinates me about Max is this the flexibility with genre. I mean, we've been talking about this so much, but it's like he is not. He has no issue throwing out anything that's not working anymore and adapting to the trends. Like, is it's so interesting to me? And I'm actually I'm curious to know, is Max Martin a trendsetter or is he just an expert sort of chameleon with trend? Because it's like you've got so the chair on sound that seemed trendsetting to me. The pop punk song sound, that was also somewhat transcending. This era to me is interesting because I feel like you have people like Lady Gaga coming onto the scene before Katy Perry and before Britney Sven Fatale and sort of driving the dance music trend that was dominating at that point. And Max and Luke kind yeah. of adapt to the trend more than they're creating it in that sense, right? Like if you listen to a song like... Till the World Ends, which they produced, or Hold It Against Me, the Britney songs uh, from that era, those songs are very much like they're adapting to the Lady Gaga aesthetic and the EDM aesthetic, but they don't create that sound.
1: I agree. Yeah, I I think his influence shifted in terms of making the sound, or, you know, like a a dominant production motif that was obviously recognizable as a Max Martin song, which was definitely clear of the Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears is, you right. know, no longer a signature sound. It's more of a expertise in composition and, you know, mm-hmm.
0: and precision uh, in sort of songcraft.
1: Right, right, and, and yeah, perfection. But yeah, not not somebody you necessarily so, say like I said, that's a Max Martin song, right? But that's of course why he's successful. It's the same right. answer exactly. to why he's successful. Like if he had a recognizable style, then yeah, he would be dated very quickly because it changes. I mean, he's had recognizable eras, I guess, styles within certain eras. But what what answers the the question of why he's lasted is that yeah, he is. Uniquely able to collaborate with very different kinds of people, like Lennon and McCartney. You know, I mean, they did solo work, but it's not like they teamed up with others. Maybe some people helped them, or you know, I mean, Jagger's and Richards. Like most people who find a sound, sort of stay with it, and that's, I think, partly because they're making music for themselves and not for other people. Maybe like Max, you can't mm. forget that Max is always like positioned himself in as, service. Yeah, like a hired gun. Really, he, he mm. embraces that. He's a guy that like when you need a hit and it's like the last minute you can call him and pay him a fortune but he'll be that guy right like if anybody's gonna yeah. be that guy he's
0: that guy and yet you know yeah it's like it's as you were saying it's not like a stylistic trend but it is the sort of expert touches on the melodic math i mean if we're going to talk about also the edm max era it brings me back to my point about ariana it's like now that i've become who i really are you can actually link that back to you know uh, I, I want it that way, chorus making no sense. I mean, there are little things. And then the focus on melody. I mean, Max's songs always come laced with these huge melodies, whether it's the chorus of Hold It Against Me, the chorus of Teenage Dream, the chorus of Break Free. No These songs are sturdy songs that are dressed up in the style that they need to be in order to work at any given moment in a sense. I actually had a thought when I was rereading your book yesterday. I was thinking about the Free Kesha mo- movement. So Max Martin is involved in the Kesha, in the big Kesha, Kesha record, some of them, but that's more Luke's project. And then Kesha, as we all know, makes these allegations against Dr. Luke that sort of put his career on ice for a while. And there's this movement that arises around Kesha called the Free Kesha movement. It arises around the fact that Kesha on her second album very much did not want to remake the sound that Dr. Luke had made for her on her first album that had made her very successful. She wanted to make more of a rock album. She wanted to write more of the songs. She wanted to be more of a art, uh, personality-driven artist. And her fans really rallied around her at that point and wanted that for her in a sense. And I was thinking to myself, that feels like a change in pop music at that time, away from sort of like pop fans wanting their artists to make perfect baubles for the radio and more needing their artists to be much more driven by authenticity. This is the same time that artists are interacting with their fans much more in social media there's this movement in pop away from sort of this like virtuosic us and them we're separated you make perfect products and I consume it and more of this relationship that's developing between pop artists and fans where fans want to feel that the artists are authentically connected to the music that they're putting out and that they are authentically connected to their favorite pop stars and I thought to myself like the Free Kesha movement feels like a moment where that sort of happened where her fans actually were like Free Kesha let Kesha make Music without Doctor Luke. We actually don't want the sort of pop machine songs. We we actually would prefer our artist to make her own thing. And I think that that sort of sets us up for the this interesting latest swing in Max's career, which has been Max working really with much more musician-driven artists. I mean. The big artists that Max has worked with over the last five, six, seven years are Taylor Swift, an artist who brings quite a bit to the table as a songwriter, as a driver of her own narrative. The Weeknd, again, another artist who is fully bona fide as his own artist. So you have these two artists who arrive to Max well into their careers with fully established sonic palettes, worlds, that they've created themselves, that they are coming to Max's service, which is quite different than the Max experience of many of these past eras. And then Ariana, to a degree, I mean, Ariana's less this way, but she's still very personality-driven. So I'm curious, like, how do you feel like Max has had to adapt his approach to producing and writing to work with these pop stars that are much more in control and less at his whim? Has that manifested in the music in a way that we can hear?
1: Well, with Taylor Swift, I mean, that was a huge departure for Max because, yeah, he's here working with an artist that's already like an enormous star, but who wants to transcend arenas and play stadiums. So he's not in a situation where this is not anybody, but he's also in a situation where this person needs something he has. Which is this bigger pop sound, the global pop sound or something that Taylor Swift doesn't have. Taylor Swift has like country, folky, kind of Nashville-y right. thing, which feels a little regional, so...
0: Right, and what's really what's really interesting to me is, actually, and I think you hear him more hardcore on 1989, but a song like We Are Never Ever Getting Get Together, I remember thinking when that song came out, like, this is the first time I've heard a Max Martin song where it really sounds like a marriage between him and the artist in this way that I sort of had never heard from his music before. Like, it sounds both like a Taylor Swift song and a Max Martin song at one time.
1: I remember when we broke up the first time, seeing this is it, I've had enough And that's the other important thing, is that Taylor had already established a very strong lyrical, lyric persona for herself in her songs, and very much an author of her own narrative in her songs and that was new for, for max too and his lyrics aren't really his area anyway so i think he was kind of happy to have somebody who actually liked writing the lyrics those guys had worked with bonnie mckee for a lot of those Katy perry songs because katie didn't write lyrics so so here's an artist that's actually a really good lyric writer so that right there is just right. kind of a a whole new step into someone with empowered with their own singer-songwriter chops, But I don't know, I think it was just a, a, another kind of brilliant meeting of the minds that elevated both people, like a song like Blank Space, very electronic, no instruments are played. So that's a big departure. Just that sound, the whole electronic sound was new for Taylor, but he almost didn't even notice it because like the there was enough elements of Taylor in a song like Blank Space you don't notice how different the production actually is. So it was a lot of I think to remain Taylor. But actually, also have a very different sound that appeal to a, you know a bigger audience. For a weekend. So it's
0: In a way, it's almost like the latest Max Martin adaptation, if he's like the ultimate cyborg able to adapt to his new environment no matter what it is, and that's sort of the secret to his success, like in a way, the latest swing, if like pop star item now is all about authenticity. I mean, if you look at someone like Olivia Rodrigo, like the entire project is about you are getting insights into this girl's life. She is writing her own music. Billie Eilish, the same thing. It's like there's this sort of like drive in pop stardom towards authenticity. They have to have it. There isn't really a huge interest right now in pop stars that feel manufactured to people. So Max's latest adaptation that I think... Taylor is the turn and screw in, and the weekend is sort of the greatest expression of is his ability to sort of take what they have naturally and sort of give it his gloss or something like that. As like, which is a big departure from the Sharon thing. I mean, if the Sharon thing was like, here it is, I've got everything, I've totally like, I'm delivering you a finished product. Now, what he's become very good at is sort of adapting. There is there's almost no sound to what he does. It's just about him sort of like sparkling his thing on these very personality driven artists that are very much like rooted in the notions of their own authenticity like the weekend is an extreme departure from the backstreet boys i mean this is an artist that's extremely edgy mm-hmm. it had a very influentially defined yeah. sound before he ever works with max martin and max martin just sort of comes in works in the weekend sonic universe and just sort of gives it that that max yeah. martin sheen that drives it to number one but he has to very much like work within the worlds that the pop stars are creating as opposed to the early part of his career where they were working in the world he was creating it's like the inverse in love,
1: I'm, I'm, I can feel my face when i'm with you i love it my love it. oh i can feel my face when i'm She'll be the death That's a great point. And I think it's a dangerous situation for a guy like Max Martin to be in because, like, there are a lot of people that still feel like they don't need a Max Martin. Once you go down that road of authenticity, it's hard to say that Max is going to thrive in in that right. Because it's sort of the definition of, you know, authentic. Just the fact that he's been around so long and worked with so many different artists and so many different styles. Taylor moved on from him partly for that reason, too. Um, I agree,
0: yeah. I don't think she liked the narrative that he was such a creative force in her music.
1: Exactly. I think that, uh, and he won Producer of the Year, and, you know, then she moved on to Jack Antonoff and the guy from the National.
0: So, do you feel like Max's potentially on a downswing right now and that, like, we're just in one part of the Napoleonic cycle and it will, will come back around to needing a Max Martin sort of sound again? I mean, it's not like he's receded. Blinding Lights was the biggest song of the last year, so he's not exactly, like, in a rut, per se. But you were making a point, which I think is true, which is that new artists aren't going to him. He's not producing for Billie Eilish. He's not producing for Olivia Rodrigo. These artists are, I think, steering away from him on purpose. But is it the kind of thing where you think this man has adapted a million times before and he'll figure out a way to adapt again. Or do you actually think we are maybe in the, in the sort of twilight of the Max Martin era?
1: I think he would love to sort of do what ABBA did and, um, take his early work and, and find it like maybe a musical, maybe like a stage, a different venue that would take those songs in a new context, the way that ABBA, did with um, you know the ABBA musical, Ooh. then the movie, oh, and, and was like an enormous value uh, enhancer for, for the music. Uh, apart from that MxM music is the publishing company that Max has opened and operates in California where he now spends most of his time and has a large stable of young writers and I think has become you know even more so kind of like the, the uber mentor not even maybe in the room a lot of times when the songs are being made but sort of like a, a top editor or a, a, you know like the, the Michelangelo who changes a little thing on the painting and then send, you know, but basically it's written by the people in the studio. Yeah, I don't know. Like at some point, he's so far beyond where anyone else has gone in terms of longevity. But um, yeah, it's crazy. The years aren't really really in your favor in that business. Yeah, but
0: he's defied the odds so many times before that I would not count him out.
1: No, I don't count him out. I'm sure you know, he only needs a few more hits to get to John Lennon and Paul McCartney. So he may he may get there. And he's continually finding young people to collaborate with. And, and he works like a demon.
0: I, for one, I think would, I'd be fascinated to hear what a Billie Eilish, Max Martin song would sound like. I I think it I, I'm curious, actually, like how he could adapt to this new world. My last question for you, John, is, is there sort of an underrated Max Martin song that you came across in your journey of studying him that you'd like to go out on like that just is one of your favorites? Uh, in his arm
1: you know i always liked bon jovi uh it's your life just in terms of like a chorus like a rock chorus i mean the, the, there's something about the song that's maybe a little bit false not maybe like a song you would say is a great rock song but the chorus is magnificent it's kind of a weird sort of one-off in max at the time so i don't know I, I feel like let's not forget max wrote that one
0: and maybe a maybe the purest expression of like what an actual Max Martin song would sound like as a solo artist. It could be,
1: it could be, yeah. yeah, the one that he might actually perform, yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, John Seabrook, thank you so so much for being on the podcast. This was such an honor. You are incredible.
1: All right, man, Louis, it's really fun talking to you. A lot of great ideas that you have about uh, music, so I appreciate hearing them. Thank you, thank you.
0: Here's "It's My Life" by Bon Jovi, and. Over and out. It's my live Well that's it. Pop Pantheon Max Martin. No Pantheon ranking this episode, but I think we can all sit here and just sort of say, what a fucking career this man has had. So many incredible songs that I think we all cherish so much. And if you want to go over to the Spotify playlist that I put together that sums up all of the great Max Martin songs, all of my favorites, also some lesser known ones, Click the link in the episode description. Follow Pot Pantheon Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Follow me, Dj L O U I E X I V on Instagram and Twitter. Please rate and review this podcast. And I wanna say thank you once again to the amazing John Seabrook. Please pick up his book, The Song Machine. It is so fascinating about Max and about a lot of other producers and songwriters who have written a lot of our favorite records and With all of that said, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode, and I will see you again in two weeks with another installment. Bye-bye.